Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS Programme, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. Uh, if you haven't heard us before, we're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. Now, that's education that's public in word and deed, but above all, it is public in access. It's accessible to all children, parents, teachers, cleaners, principals. There is no discrimination when it comes to enrolment in public schools. In this, they differ greatly from the private sector. I'm going to be talking a bit about this today because there's been a very interesting article appeared in Fairfax Press in the last week by a gentleman called Mr Hasty. Mr Hasty is up in Brisbane at the Alpha Crucis College. It's a Pentecostal college for producing business people and uh, nurses and teachers and others. But he has a very interesting article. It's almost a mea culpa, one would think. We're going to hear from Oliver about this in, in a moment. As well as that, we're going to be uh, talking about what's happened up in the north of Melbourne where an Islamic school has stood down a principal because it appears that he dared to go with his staff or encourage his staff to go to the union. And uh, we're also going to deal with up in Sydney where private schools are being asked by councils because they don't pay any rates to open their grounds to public school students. And there's a few other very interesting articles as well. And we've got, of course, Jeff, who is our overseas expert. But let's get on with the program. Oliver is going to read our press release 968, which you will be able to find on our website at www.adogs.info. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. This is press release 968, a some Christian school apologists troubled by a guilty conscience. On January 31st, Jenna Price wrote an article in Fairfax Press entitled, Why We Should Defund Private Schools and Examine Their Values, in which she argued, following the Four Corners program on Sydney Opus Day schools. There is no better time to defund private schools than now, and no better time to examine the values these schools teach to an ever-increasing number of students enrolled. Her article provoked 577 comments, many agreeing with her. Dogs were interested in the large number agreeing with their no state aid for private schools position. On February 13th, a reply appeared, again in the Fairfax Press. This was written by David Hasty, an associate professor and deputy vice president of Alpha Crucis University College in Brisbane. Alpha Crucis is a multidisciplinary Christian university, a Pentecostal college in Brisbane, shaping and forming students to make an impact in the world of business, counselling, education, ministry, music, and beyond. Hasty's article is entitled, Defunding Private Schools is Not On, But We Can Make Education Fairer. Dogs are interested in the twinges of Christian conscience exhibited by David Hasty in his article. After providing a simplistic account of the 19th century struggles of the public system to provide an education for all the nation's children with the usual private school sideswipes at state centralised administrations, Hasty weeps crocodile tears for the disadvantaged. For the inequity has never been our way and is never the mission of teachers, but many educators are now part of an unintended structure that produces inequity and social fragmentation. This has nothing to do with ideology, but rather a simple metric. Our high level of school choice, according to the OECD, the highest in the world, means parents can vote with their feet. When enrolments jump from state to non-government schools in postcodes with lower social capital, they take a proportion of public funding and higher social capital families with them. This strain is driving many state schools into a spiral of decline and disadvantage. It is a burden that educators of religious faith bear heavily, he writes. Dogs applaud Hasty for admitting that genuine Christians might well be concerned about the growing inequities caused by the, mush caused by the mushrooming of their schools at taxpayers' expense. But his answer to the problem is a strange one. He is not prepared to return to a free, compulsory, and non-sectarian system of education. No, he wants to continue the mushrooming of Christian schools, but with a common vision between public and non-government schools, which will mend a great social divide. 
Dogs suggest that if David Hasty accepts a Christian view that all are equal under God, including children of school age, then schools which discriminate against the enrollment of children on the basis of class, creed, or color cannot be part of any common vision between either genuine Christian or public schools. And if he takes the trouble to find out the more recent history of the state aid issue, he might discover that back in 1979 to 81, so-called Christian schools in Australia, when fearful of losing their taxpayer dollars, argued for 26 days in the High Court of Australia that they were no more religious than public schools. For the love of money, they sold their soul. Perhaps, and this is what is perhaps the worrying fact for David Hasty and his co-religionists, back in 1979, the Christian schools were right. Public schools which do not discriminate against children, parents, teachers, principals, or anyone else on the basis of class, creed, or color are more Christian than those that claim to be value-based religious schools that close their doors to the needy and any child that does not fit their stereotype. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Oliver. Yes, well, I found a very interesting article, not least because Mr. Hasty doesn't seem to understand what's actually happening in Australia. He accuses government schools of being over-centralised and unable to run themselves. He doesn't seem to understand that there's been considerable decentralisation of state education uh, in recent years. And he assumes that all, all private schools run themselves without being told to do anything from anybody else. Now, let's, let's get the, the facts straight. Uh, the Catholic system is run by a highly centralised administration um, and uh, it goes all the way up to the archbishops, of course. And um, the private schools also have to adhere to a curriculum which is drawn up by Canberra. In fact, the whole of Australian education curriculum is run from Canberra. It's all highly centralised. So uh, there's a bit of romancing going on in his article. As well as that, he comes up with the idea that you can't defund private schools because the state can't afford to run them. But we are running them already. We're paying for them already. So it would, in fact, uh, given the duplication of educational facilities, uh, it would, in fact, save the taxpayers a great deal of money if we did defund private schools. They found this out in the 19th century uh, and Mr Hasty. Uh, seems to have a very strange view of the educational situation in Australia. He may be right that it's not politically correct at the moment to talk about defunding private schools, but uh, very strange things happen in Australian politics. But uh, there were a lot of comments to his article in the same way as there are a lot of comments to Jenna's article, and Dale's going to read some of those comments. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, Musicing Out Loud says the headline's premise is wrong. We have a limited pot of taxpayer funds and a quite badly performing public school system that has delivered a decade of degraded national performance of Australian students. Over this decade, Australia has performed increasingly badly against international educational benchmarks. The progressive defunding of private schools is a fundamental requirement to rebuild the public school system where the majority of students are educated. On that one, Dale, we read out uh, an article last week which uh, proved that, in fact, it's not the public schools that are dragging down the PISA tests and the NAPLAN tests, it's the private schools. In fact, although they're not funded as greatly as the private schools, the public schools are, in fact, doing better academically. The person making that comment obviously hasn't been listening to the dogs to find out that information, but uh, their premise, the premise of the comment uh, we might agree with in, in that uh, defunding private schools is necessary in order to make the public system yes. actually work. Of Meld says funding private schools is the reason their numbers increase. Howard pushed it even further and more and more private schools sprang up precisely because they could get government funding. Maybe we just stop allowing and approving any more private schools to be established and funded, defund them. Really over it says, no, defund all private, sorry, independent schools. They want to be independent? Fine. Embrace your capitalist principles and do it on your own dime. Uh, Foresight says parents can vote with their feet 
all they want. That doesn't mean the public has to fund it. Theo says there can be no justification for funding rich private schools of whatever denomination. State aid, as it was once called, was supposed to be funding private schools to the same dollar per capita head as the public schools, which was supposed to be the fair and just way. But now the rich private schools are getting funding for luxury facilities while systemic schools flounder. Where is the equitable fairness in that? GD says defund private schools of public money. And it goes on and on uh, very much in what the dogs would say. Defund private schools altogether. Back to you, Jean. Oh, well, we'll have a bit of a break. And then uh, Dale's going to come back to tell us about how the uh, private schools are, in fact, uh, not very happy with the Australian Law Reform Commission because they want to discriminate against children and staff. They do and they want to continue to do so. They say this is their religious right. But uh, what is the right of children to an education, especially if it is publicly funded? But we'll have a bit of a break. Dreesier needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03 9419 8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and here is Dale to read out how the Prime Minister and our politicians unfortunately just lay down and let the so-called faith schools walk over them. Okay, over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yes, this article is from The Guardian. Uh, PM reaffirms commitment to allow religious schools to hire staff based on faith. Albanese says Labor made its position clear a long time ago after religious groups rejected proposals as having severe limits. Australian religious leaders have written to the Attorney General saying their schools want to employ staff who share or are willing to uphold their beliefs. Anthony Albanese has reiterated that Labor will respect religious schools' right to select staff based on faith after widespread backlash from religious school groups to a proposal to limit their hiring and firing powers. On Monday, an alliance of religious leaders rejected a proposal by the Australian Law Reform Commission, ALRC, to allow religious preference only where the teaching, observance or practice of religion is a genuine occupational requirement. The group, including the Sydney Anglican and Catholic Churches, Greek Orthodox Church, the National Imams Council and Executive Council of Australia Jury, wrote a letter to the Attorney-General arguing the severe limits proposed by the ALRC went beyond its terms of reference. In January, Guardian Australia revealed the Catholic education sector would oppose the ALRC's bid to remove existing exemptions to the Sex Discrimination Act that enable discrimination and replace it with a narrower right to give more favourable treatment on the ground of religion for hiring employees where it is proportionate in all circumstances. The proposal in the ALRC consultation paper would align the federal laws more closely to Victoria and Tasmania, which protect non-teaching staff, such as administrative staff, from discrimination and allow faith-based discrimination only where it is an occupational requirement. In response to a question about the controversy on Tuesday, the Prime Minister told Labor's caucus that we made our position clear clear a long time ago that faith-based schools can employ people of their own faith. Before the election, Labor committed to protect all students from discrimination on any grounds and to protect teachers 
from discrimination at work while maintaining the right of religious schools to preference people of their faith in the selection of staff. In the letter seen by The Guardian Australia, the religious leaders praised the Albanese government for asking the ALRC to balance the right not to be discriminated against based on sexual orientation, gender identity, marital or relationship status or pregnancy within the freedom of religious schools to build a community of faith. But they said the ALRC proposal would introduce an uncertain new test into employment law and put the onus on schools to prove that it satisfied the test, acting as a deterrent from giving preference to one candidate. Religious schools do not seek the right to discriminate on the basis of a protected attribute, attribute, but simply to be able to employ staff who share or are willing to uphold the religious beliefs of the school, they said. The Shadow Education Minister Sarah Henderson and the Shadow Attorney General Jason Lesser accused the government of breaking their commitment to schools and parents on the issue. Lesser told Sky News the ALRC plan would mean schools can only mandate that the Minister of Religion or Religious Education teacher be of their faith. A spokesperson for the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, said the ALRC inquiry was a first crucial step towards implementing its election commitment, but noted government will not consider its response until it has reported. The ALRC is an independent agency, the spokesperson said. It is now conducting its inquiry and has not finished its advice to government. Back to you, Jean. Well, we'll have a little bit of a break and uh, then we've got Kim, who's got a very interesting article indeed. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program. I hope uh, we've been telling you about Mr. Hasty uh, from the Pentecostal College up in Brisbane who thinks that uh, public and private schools should perhaps have a shared vision, although uh, we all know that public schools do not discriminate and private schools do discriminate. We've heard from Dale about how um, they want to discriminate on the basis of religion, but there's a very interesting article that Kim's going to tell us about up the uh, north of uh, Melbourne, where it comes down to uh, whether or not a principal can uh, encourage his uh, staff to go to the union. Uh, Over to you, Kim. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, so this article was written by Adam Carey and it's titled School Board Stand Down Principal Days After It Refused to Pay Staff. The principal of an inner North Melbourne private school that began the school year by withholding its teachers' pay has been stood down due to alleged misconduct, prompting an outpouring of support from staff who were calling for his reinstatement. Neil Hensankali, principal of East Preston Islamic College, has been stood down by the school's new board days after the board withheld wages from its teachers and support staff. The new board, which has been locked in a legal dispute with the old board, claimed it could not pay staff until the old board authorised the release of funds. All members of the former board were purged in a vote late last year. Staff were eventually paid their overdue wages last week after the Independent Education Union took the case to the Fair Work Commission. The union dropped the matter once the board authorised payments for the school's more than 100 staff after mediation with the old board in the Supreme Court. 54 staff submitted applications for financial hardship payments before the dispute was settled. Most staff members signed a petition this week pleading with the board to reinstate Hansen Kali, a long-serving senior employee at the school. The petition to the school's board members seen by The Age says, please find a list of staff who come together to support Neil Hansen Kali. We request that he has returned to his position as principal at East Preston Islamic College 
as soon as possible. His hard work and efforts at our school have made a positive difference and he still has a lot to offer. The petition has been signed by more than 100 staff members. A school employee who wished to remain anonymous said staff were informed by the board during a fiery all-staff meeting that Hensenkley had been stood down on serious misconduct allegations but were not provided with any details. The employee said that when probed, the board said Hensenkley had been stood down for speaking to the union, media and school's regulator about the withheld pay. Council secretary and new board, new school board member Faud Hassan confirmed that Hensenkley had been stood down due to alleged misconduct but declined to go into details. He rejected claims that it was retribution for speaking out about with the withholding of staff pay. It's something that is just in the normal procedures if the board believes there was misconduct. He has been notified, he's on full pay, and at the moment it is taking its process, Hassan said. East Preston Islamic College is owned by the Islamic Coordinating Council of Victoria, a group of 11 community groups in Melbourne. A former staff member said he felt sick in the stomach about the upheaval, which has damaged staff morale and threatened to disrupt the education of students. This power struggle, it is honestly a pity. I don't know if they're thinking about kids and staff morale. This will affect the kids' education and we are there for the kids, he said. The school, through fee-paying, has a mostly disadvantaged cohort and 97% come from a non-English speaking background. Hassan said the school was functioning normally under the acting leadership of a vice principal and the children's education was not being affected. The school is running properly, he said. There is no incident in regard to the well-being of teachers or students. And Zankley was contacted for comment. Back to you, Jean. Oh, well, that's very interesting, isn't it? Remember, Mr Hasty was saying how wonderful it was that private schools could just do things their own way. Uh, yes, well, sometimes the things their own way uh, are, um, are questionable. But... Um, We'll have a bit of a break and uh, we've got some more interesting news for you. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Programme and uh, here is Peter, who's got a very interesting story from Sydney, where the North Shore Councils, where the uh, rates are pretty high, are putting pressure on the private schools that don't pay any rates at all. Over to you, Peter. Okay, yes. Uh, thank you, Jean. Uh, the article is, Top Private Schools Face Pressure to Open Grounds to Public Students. Uh, a cluster of top Sydney private schools are facing pressure to open their grounds to public uh, students in a bid to boost access to port sports facilities and open space in high-density suburbs. North Sydney Mayor Zoe Baker plans to ask principals at Shaw School, Loretto Kirribilli, Winona, St Aloysius College and Redlands to consider sharing their facilities with locals. The idea is backed by City's Minister, Rob Stokes, who in 2018 floated a similar proposal that private schools allow public students to access their multi-million dollar sports and performing arts centres. Quote, the community makes significant contribution to both private and public schools. As our cities become denser, we have to be more thoughtful and efficient about the use of space, Stokes told the Herald. Baker wrote to principals in her school council this week and will, quote, invite them to have a conversation about how the schools and council can support the community. Some of the private schools are largest landholders in the North Sydney area. Baker said. We have a lack of green space and 16 schools. Traditionally, there has been a hostile relationship between the local community and some private schools, and we are trying to reset that. Sydney Grammar Principal Richard Melpus said his school is looking to make its planned Weagle Sports Centre with a swimming pool, water polo, basketball, fencing, taekwondo facilities available to local children from our nearby schools. 
Grammar is hoping to provide access to sporting and aquatic facilities, which, given the population density of the surrounding area, are suffocatingly short supply in our part of the city. Sydney Grammar is spending more than $50 million on its new Rushcutters Bay Centre. It is one of multiple high-fee private schools investing in major upgrades to performing arts and aquatic centres, including Loreto Killabelli, which has recently spent $33 million on a seven-storeys innovation centre, part of a $100 million campus transformation over 50 years. Shaw's Northbridge campus has six full-sized ovals and recently overhauled an aquatic centre. So there's quite a lot of hardware there, isn't there, isn't Jane? St <laughs> Ignatius College Riverview in the North Shore recently shut its grounds to public during term time. Local residents have long been able to access harbourside trails and ferry wharf via the school. Baker said access to schools, playing grounds and sports grounds would be particularly useful for local public schools, uh, public students and the community in her local council area and suggested occasional after-hours use of facilities could be an option. That's a very modest request, isn't it? Yeah. For so much of the year, this is a quote, for so much of the year, schools sit unused and most campuses close at four o'clock. We should search for opportunities where space can be shared where it is suitable, Baker said. Stokes canvassed a similar idea in 2018 when he was education minister. That was aimed at minimising duplication and trying to make use of the best facilities available to all students. I think it is time we looked at this again, he said. While there are examples where it is not appropriate for the public to access private school land, decisions should be made at a public school level about particular uh, practical partnerships with the community, such as the use of a court or field for sports training, he said. It's a very modest request, aren't they? The success of our Share Our Space scheme where playgrounds at public schools are open to the public when not in use, has demonstrated a lot of fears opening schoolyards to the community are misplaced. The New South Wales public schools have led by example. Unquote. Former North Sydney Boys High Principal Robin Hughes said that while some sharing of facilities between private and public schools already happens, it is mostly at an ad hoc basis. She welcomed the idea of increasing the sharing of halls and fields between schools. Quote, especially for all outdoor activities, the use of playing fields would be especially useful, she said. Ideally, it works both ways where school partner and share spaces, but there has to be a willingness on both sides. A spokesperson for Cremorne's Redland School said its oval indoor basket courts and outdoor spaces were used extensively during school hours and after hours on weekdays and on weekends for school sport and other school community activities and events. The New South Wales Association of Independent Schools head Marjorie Evans said many independent schools already made facilities available to community. Quote, we support school facilities and assets being used by third parties where mutually suitable arrangements can be agreed and resolve issues such as child protection, legal liability and cleaning. Evans said independent schools must satisfy government requirements that facilities are only be made available to other parties when they are not required by the school, when they do not obstruct school normal activities and where any sharing does not incur additional costs for the school. Yes, well, they already have a lot, a lot of privileges with respect to costs are concerned. Yes, well, there's a... Uh, a, a very fine line between public and private there, isn't there? Very interesting indeed. But uh, 
public schools, of course, are owned by the public and they're open to the public. But we'll have a bit of a break and uh, come back with another interesting article. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, anyone would think that this dog's program was about private schools, and in fact it probably is uh, because the private schools are leeching money out of the public system. But uh, parents uh, listen to all of the hype about how good private schools are and uh, as Robert always used to say, it would be much better to put your money aside not having to pay fees and save up for a house for your children in the current uh, current climate because it costs anything up to a million dollars to put somebody through private schools these days. But are the higher costs of private school justified? Over to you, Maddie. Thank you, Jean. This article is by George Hyde and it was written on February 11th. Deciding whether to send your kids to private or public school can be stressful and confusing. The debate on whether private schools are worth the investment compared to public schools, also known as government schools, is complex and fraught. Private school fees can be one of the biggest expenses families pay term by term, and some schools are getting very expensive. Parents can pay anywhere from $10,000 to $40,000 each year per student. The cost of private school education in Sydney per student for 13 years, is estimated to be $357,931, which is 19% or $57,000 above the national average of $300,000, according to Futurity Investment Group research. Many parents are happy to pay the high price to send their children to private schools, because they perceive they offer a high level of prestige and academic excellence unmatched by public schools. That's, we know, is rubbish. The The statistics speak for themselves. Parents may believe that by attending private school, their kids will have access to a particular social network or that the school will provide a more personalised learning experience. Additionally, They may think private schools have more resources and extracurricular activities, giving students a more well-rounded education. So, is this the case? Do students from private schools outperform those in the public system? Dr Sally Larson, lecturer and researcher at the School of Education um, at the University of New England, said when weighing up private versus public that it's important to remember all schools follow the same curriculum. Dr. Larson has been quoted saying all teachers are trained using the same standards and they're all accredited using the same accreditation system, regardless of which sector they're in. She also said that it's not so much the school that dictates whether a student succeeds academically, rather, it's their support networks outside of the school environment. Once you account for family background or socioeconomic status, there is no difference in academic outcomes between school sectors, at least up until middle high school, she said. Experts said that according to OECD data, there is no significant difference in students' academic achievement in private schools versus public schools once socioeconomic status is considered. Dr Larson said although students in private schools are statistically more likely to finish high school, This is because public schools cater to a broader distribution of abilities in students. It's the types of students that are in different school sectors that give this appearance that more students in private schools get really high ATARs, but that's not necessarily related to the influence of the school itself, and it's more that segregation effect. That segregation effect is the unequal distribution of resources and educational quality in schools based on race, and socioeconomic background. The OECD says this leads to a disparity in educational opportunities and outcomes for students and can deprive children of opportunities to learn, play and communicate with each with other children from different social, cultural and ethnic backgrounds. Education expert Dr Sue Thompson told TND that one of the main differences between private and public schools is that the former can choose their students, often not admitting those who are most vulnerable or in need of support. 
They won't be taking in the kids who are at most risk. They won't be taking in the ones with severe ADHD problems, for example, which means that all of those sorts of issues become more concentrated in government schools. It's widely reported that public schools are underfunded relative to what they should be. The Gillard government's Gonski report recommended that all schools be funded to the Student Resource Standard, SRS, a calculation based on students' educational needs. Private schools tend to be overfunded and they are funded by different mechanisms than public schools, said Dr. Larson. Private schools have every right to charge as much as they like in fees from parents, but the government is also giving them an amount of money as well. And whether it's a little bit less than what the public school gets, they still get considerably more money per student than public schools do and yet provide essentially the same service. Dr. Thompson said governments needed to give more money to public schools. I think there is a clear opportunity for proper funding of government schools rather than what we've got at the moment. It needs to be fixed, she said. She also said that the latest Productivity Commission report showed that funding for independent or non-government schools has increased at a faster rate than funding for government schools. The proportion of SRS funding shows that most government schools are not funded at 100% whereas most private schools, certainly the wealthy ones, will be funded at or above 100%. Increased funding for public schools would have several benefits, according to Dr. Thompson. It would allow schools to attract more qualified teaching staff, reduce class sizes for disadvantaged students, and provide more resources for struggling students. She said the lack of resources and support has led to difficulties in attracting and retaining quality teachers, who feel overworked and undervalued in their profession. The cost of sending a child to school, whether it's a government or private school, can be expensive. As cost of living pressures spiral, many families will feel the pinch on household budgets, especially those who are middle-income households and don't receive government help. Dr Larson said that one of the benefits of public school over private is that fees often termed as contributions, are voluntary and schools can waive them if families suffer from financial hardship. Despite voluntary contributions, Dr Thompson said that sending kids to government schools was still incredibly expensive and that those families were likely impacted to a greater extent than families who sent kids to private school. It's very expensive at a government school. To start a kid at school, there is computer, uniforms, school camps, it's many thousands of dollars to start off. Ultimately, parents should consider their financial situation and their child's specific needs when deciding which type of school is best for them, said Dr. Larson. The biggest decision, apart from will this school fit my child, is can I afford to pay for private education, he said. And so sometimes the answer to that is actually no. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's a very interesting article. But, mm. um, of course, if we were like Finland, we wouldn't have to worry about the private schools at all and the survival and segregation and social uh, problems that they uh, bring upon our community. And we started off, of course, with Dr Hasty having a few twinges of that Christian conscience about what they are, in fact, doing to our society. We're going to go overseas now to find out what's happening there. Over to you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jean. And look, uh, as usual, we go. We st I started with uh, Diana Ravitch's blog where she's reposted a, a, an interesting article from a woman called by the name of Andrea Phillips, who's a teacher down in Florida, and she's written a, an article for the Independent. Uh, came out on the second of February, um, and it's um, about her experiences as a teacher in Florida. She says. Here's what the DeSantis book bans look like in my classroom. Um, and she says, I'm done, I'm done. What do I do now? Every teacher in every classroom hears this many thousands of times daily from their students. In my classroom, for more than a decade, the answer has always been get a book and read. That is until last week when I was told to pack up my classroom library until further notice. The state of Florida, where I teach, has passed vague laws on what books teachers can and cannot have in their classrooms. Um, House Bill 1467, signed by Governor DeSantis in March of last year, basically states that schools must be transparent in their selection of instructional library and reading materials, meaning that parents have the right to know what their students are reading and, me and a means to view those materials. 
All materials must be free of pornography, gender identity issues for students in kindergarten through third grade, as well as any books related to discrimination based on race, colour, sex or national origin. These books must also be approved by a certified media specialist. On the surface, this seems reasonable, but it goes much deeper. The bill does not name specific books to ban, nor a system in which to vet the books. It does, however, come with a fear-mongering threat of a Class 3 felony which could cause a teacher to lose not only their teaching certificate, but their right to vote as well. Many schools, including my own, do not have a full-time media specialist. Due to budget cuts, we have a media specialist every other week. That means we have one person to vet thousands of books in our school alone before we can have them in our classrooms. In addition to the mountain of work now laid in her lap, she hasn't even been given a system to vet the books with. Currently, it's a subjective process of a single person reviewing each book with a 12-point questionnaire. One of my issues is that what one person finds offensive, another may find silly. For example, the book No David by David Shannon. On page one, an illustration of David running pantless down the street is shown. One media specialist may find this humorous, as it was intended, while another may label it as pornographic. The lack of directives and specificities makes me fear for the future of school-based libraries. In an attempt to shield their teachers from disciplinary actions, my district issued a directive to make all classroom libraries and media centre books unavailable to students until further directed. We have been told that this is a temporary move as the district works towards compliance with this law, but only with only one person to vet thousands of books, it doesn't feel very temporary. And she goes on, I'm just going to skip through the article. Um, and at the end of the day, basically her kids wondering what to do. The next day, my first group of students entered and immediately asked, where are all of our books, Miss Phillips? Our books, not mine, but theirs. The kids know that I use my time, my money and my resources to collect these books and curate a library for them. They are meant to, be, to build a foundation in literacy and inspire a lifelong love of reading, not just for educational purposes, but for enjoyment as well. I explained to them that there was a new rule and we, until we had someone look at all of our books, we had to put them away. Shoulders slumped, faces looked confused and sad, and one of my most voracious readers, who typically, get, typically gets three to four books per week from me, started to cry. My only offer of comfort was to explain to them the access they, they have to books at the public library, both in person and online. My teaching is affected. My heart doesn't feel as in it as it once did. Parents trust me with the safety and well-being of their most valuable possession every day, not only their physical well-being, but also their mental well-being. I'm furious that there has been talk of putting guns in teachers' hands, but I'm not trusted enough to put a book in a child's hand. I love teaching and I'm a damn good teacher. I deserve the autonomy to make decisions within my classroom for my students. I'm a certified educator. My goal is to educate and expand thinking, not indoctrinate, as we've been accused of doing. My goal is to build lifelong readers and learners, inspire curiosity and engage students. That doesn't happen without books. Books of all subject matters and ranges. Students need and deserve the opportunity to discover their passions and escape this crazy world in a book. I don't know what this means for the future of libraries, books and education. What I do know is that although our governor sells T-shirts touting our state as the freest state in America, his version of freedom is tearing apart classrooms and sending teachers in search of new careers where not only will their expertise be recognised, but they'll be treated with the respect and dignity they deserve. What a great article and from a, obviously a, a pained teacher who's coping with this uh, prescriptive uh, top-down rules that are implied, implying that teachers don't know what they're doing. Uh, just a shame what's happening in America to public education. Now, we're going to nip across the ocean as we often do. Well, actually, it's a world story. Um, it just involves, it's written by Gordon Brown, who was Prime Minister of England between 2007 and 2010. This is an article from The Guardian. And it's the story of Shazia Ramzan, Malalia's school friend, and it shows why education must be a right for all children, says Gordon Brown. Uh, Gordon Brown is now the chairman of the UN Education Cannot Wait Fund, and was uh, yeah, so he's um, he's actually very interested in education. Uh, being a good Scot, he has a background in uh, in uh, valuing public education, and he goes on Shazaria. Ramzan has spent most of her young life fighting for her right and the right of all girls to go to school. In 2012, at the age of 14, sitting alongside her friend Malalia Yousafzai on a bus that was going from school to her home, 
in the Swat Valley in the north of Pakistan, she was shot at by an extremist intent on stopping girls from getting an education. She, she suffered injuries from which she, Malala, and their friend Kainut took months to recover. Now completing a nursing degree at Edinburgh University and preparing to start her own nurses' training school in Pakistan, Shaza Shazia has almost always had the needs of girls in her home area in her thoughts. In her time between classes, she is raising funds for Pakistani charities that are quietly but effectively helping Afghan girls who have been losing out on their education since the Taliban shut them out of the country's secondary schools. There are 5 million girls in Afghanistan who are currently out of school and they urgently need our support. Many have risked everything by demonstrating in the streets of Kabul, while sooner or later the regime will find that they cannot forever oppress brave women who have known what it is like to be free, and now the young protesters face arrest and torture. Theirs is an untold story of courage and resilience. Girls in Afghanistan are also at risk of punishment beatings if they attend underground schools run by their parents and teachers, Many more are fleeing across the border into exile in Pakistan in the hope of an education. But sadly, those who have crossed the border are joining Pakistan's ever-lengthening queue for schooling that is already 23 million children long. This is not just because of the country's recent floods, which have closed 27,000 schools, but because of Pakistan's long-term failure to invest in girls' education. Step back and the picture becomes even graver. These girls are only a fraction of the world's 222 million crisis-affected children who are in dire need of educational support. Of them, 78.2 million, including 42 million girls, do not go to school at all, while others are suffering so many disruptions in their education that they fail to acquire even in the most basic literacy and numeracy skills. Their numbers, so large that they already exceed the combined populations of Germany, France and Britain, are rising every year. More than 100 million people are refugees or internally displaced because of conflicts and civil wars, from Ukraine to Myanmar to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sudan, Ethiopia and Somalia. A large number of children today, though, are exiled from their homes, not because of war, but because they are the victims of droughts, floods and other climate-induced disasters or of natural disasters. In Turkey and Syria, the dead are still being counted, but we must also address the urgent needs of the living. All those forcibly displaced by a 7.8 magnitude earthquake from which it will take years to recover. Even if we manage to feed, shelter and treat the victims, there will be a little cash left over to provide temporary schooling unless we do better than in the past. The child victims of the earthquake could spend years excluded from education. In Turkey and Syria, as elsewhere, it will be girls who will suffer most. They are 35% more likely to be out of school than their male contemporaries, according to data from UNESCO. And we have been warned to expect that by 2030, many of them, in addition, an additional 10 million girls, will have been forced into child marriages. The number of girl brides rising yet again after years when forced marriage was on the decline. Children should not have to wait for wars to end or for the effects of natural disasters to subside for the opportunity to learn and thrive. It is to finance the education of the forgotten 222 million that Education Cannot Wait, ECW, which I chair, was created in 2017. Its replenishment conference will take place in Geneva this week in the presence of Andrew Mitchell and other international development ministers from all over the world. Seeking to bridge the divide between humanitarian aid only 2% of which was spent on education, and development aid, which always comes too late to deal with refugee crises, ECW is asking donors for $1.5 billion to support its new strategic plan. Initiatives that will prevent child labour, early marriage and trafficking include the provision of safe schools in countries where Boko Haram still abduct girls from their classrooms, the expansion of online learning and of double-shift double schools that, piloted in Lebanon, use school buildings more effectively by teaching local children in English and French in the morning and Syrian refugee children Arabic in the afternoon. We know from unspeakable recent tragedies that hope dies when food convoys and rescue workers cannot get through to besieged towns and when flimsy boats carrying refugees capsize at sea. Hope also dies when children are locked out of education and denied the chance to plan and prepare for their future. At the age of 11, 12 and 13, Young people should, not, should be optimistic and excited about the great opportunities that lie ahead, but I cannot forget hearing from charity workers in a refugee camp in Moria, Greece, 
who had discovered three refugees in their early teens so desolate that they were planning a joint suicide. For them, behind barbed wire with an insanitary camp with no schooling and little else, there was only the bleakness of despair. But hope can come alive even in the harshest and least promising places in the world if we offer children the chance of an education. It is the one way to honour the international community's as yet unredeemed promise to set out in Sustainable Development Goal 4 to be the first generation in history where every single boy and girl, stateless or not, goes to school. As Shazia's work of mercy reminds us, it is also a moral obligation that we owe to the next generation. Instead of developing some of the potential of not only some of the children in some parts of the world, we should be developing the potential of every child everywhere. And if you were affected by any of the content of the article just presented, um, please don't hesitate to contact Lifeline on 13114 or the Kids Helpline, which is 1800 55 1800. And of course, there's lots of resources online at Beyond Blue, uh, which you can search up and they will endeavour to help you. Thank you very much. And um, back to you, Jean. Thank you, Jeff. And now for the best part of our program, the Great State School. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Derrimut Primary School. The school prides itself on the excellent facilities which link learning with environment and valuing diversity and sustainability. Children are grouped in classrooms around a learning community. There are two art science spaces and breakout rooms. The main building is centred around the resource centre where children have access to state-of-the-art research and literary facilities. Learning spaces and opportunities are not confined to indoors but extend out to a full-sized oval and their own wetland area and native gardens. The school has a full-sized indoor basketball court, two outdoor courts and a lovely play area for children, most of which has extensive shade structures in place. The YMCA is a valued partner of the Derham, of Derrimut Primary School and runs a long daycare centre before and after school centre in an adjacent community hub. The facilities are being developed to ensure students have the opportunities and learning spaces to lead their learning, be independent, have choice and take risks. They're committed to improving the literacy and numeracy skills of every child a consistent instructional model and guaranteed and viable curriculum. Teachers implement high-impact teaching strategies through every lesson to ensure their children have explicit teaching, effective feedback and have goals to work on at school and at home. The interdisciplinary curriculum is led by an inquiry or action research model. Inquiry-based units explore deep knowledge of humanities, science, technology and health. This situates learning within a political, social and cultural context, globally and locally. The curriculum develops pathways to personalisation through formative assessment and goal setting, rich multi-literacy programs supported by a rich 21st century multimodal approach, including a one-to-one iPad in the three-to-six area and mentoring, coaching and leadership programs across the school. Derrimut Primary School provides the school community with an educational facility that's unique in its innovative programs delivered by dedicated staff, enjoyed by enthusiastic students and supported by families in striving for excellence in learning and achievement beyond the school gates. Now some facts and figures. The school has 706 pupils and the Ixia value of the school is 1,001, which is just above the average of 1,000. This is mainly um, an immigrant community. Uh, 10% have parents from the upper 25% in income, 23% in the second highest, 32% from the third quartile and 35% from the poorest 25% of the community. 
but 78% of the pupils speak a language other than English and 2% of are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of immigrant parents in a new Western Melbourne housing estate with dedicated principals and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $11,544 below the Gonski resource standard and well below that of any private school to educate its student in this school. The school receives only $1.6 million from the federal government and $6.4 from the state government. $165,500 come from fees and $5,800 from private fundraising. The capital grants in the last three years have only been $413,523. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results indicate that the children in this school are above average and progressing well. So congratulations to all the dedicated staff at this school. Congratulations to Derrimut Primary School. Well, congratulations to Derrimut and uh, listeners. Uh, we hope that you stuck with us because... We need you to be subscribers to 3CR to keep us on the air, to keep 3CR on the air, to keep Radical Radio on the air. But our time has gone, and from Dale and from Maddie and from Kim and from Oliver and from Peter and the dogs, it's bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.